Perimeter Church podcast. What do you have to boast about? Are you a good Christian? Well-educated? Perfect children? Successful career? Rich? The Bible tells us these differences don't matter, but do we really believe that? If we did, what effect would it have? Caleb Click, pastor to youth at First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, Georgia, continues the series The Church, Aspects of the Christian Community, with this message entitled A Community Humbled by the Gospel, which covers Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Thank you for joining us today. We are uh, again this summer in a young leader series. If you've been here for a while, you know that every year we try to, during the summer, bring some of the young leaders of our denomination, the churches that we're connected with in an important way. And this year's a very special series because all the guys in one way or another are homegrown. And today we have Caleb Click with us who spent his high school years uh, here at Perimeter. When my family moved back to Georgia in 2002, we started hearing immediately about the Click family and what a great family they were. And we got very well connected to them because my uh, older son is the age of their second son and my second son is the, all, uh, the age of their daughter, Katie. Uh, uh, Caleb is the oldest of the family and I didn't get to know him as well. But as the years went on, I started hearing more about Caleb. And especially as he worked at the Vine Community Church, a daughter church of ours, I started hearing about his gifts for preaching and ministry, and we're excited to have Caleb with us here today. As I said, he was involved with our high school ministry year, and then later Camp All America and Celebrate Recovery, and God used those ministries as well as the ministry of one of our pastors who used to be here, Matt Brinkley, to lead him to faith in Christ. He continued to grow in Christ during his time at the University of Georgia and being involved with campus outreach, headed off to a seminary in St. Louis at Covenant Theological Seminary, uh, where in fact I think four out of our five preachers in this series uh, have attended a seminary. And, uh, but God really got uh, into Caleb's heart, so to speak, about ministry when he was doing junior high ministry at Divine Community Church, one of our daughter churches up and coming. And uh, so uh, we're very thankful to have him with us. He and his wife, Mallory, are expecting their first child, a little girl. Very thrilled about that. And Caleb now serves as the minister to students, or the minister, is that the right term? The minister to youth, uh, the youth pastor at First Presbyterian Augusta, a very historic church of our denomination. And God's doing wonderful things there in and through him. I heard his message in the early service today. It's a powerful message. Caleb, come on up. Let me pray for you. Let's welcome Caleb today. And let me pray for him and for us, and uh, we'll be prepared to hear God's word. Lord, we do thank you for Caleb, and we thank you for your hand upon him. We thank you for all these connections and relationships and people that were, have been used of you in his life. And, but Lord, we also know that he's here today not because of all these other people or his mom and dad or anybody else. He's here because your hand is on him, that you saved him, that you called him, that you're working in him, you have gifted him. And Lord, I ask you today that you would give to every one of us listening hearts to your word as he opens your word for us today and shows us our Savior. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Great to have you, Kenny. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a little surreal being up here. Last time I was standing on this stage, I was wearing a green Camp All-American t-shirt, and I was dancing to the Beaver song, which if you are familiar with Camp All-American, you know what that is. If not, you should familiarize yourself. It's amazing. Um, but it is a great privilege to be here today. Um, uh, it is, for me, a, a, a unique honor because it was this church, this was the first church where I ever really felt at home. Uh, it was a pastor of this church, as Bob said, named uh, Matt Brinkley, 
who saw me when I was running from God as fast as I could and decided that I was worth chasing. And it was as a drunk 19-year-old kid sitting right over there that I heard Randy Pope get up and talk about communion. And I realized for the first time that I was not a believer in Jesus Christ and it was not something that I should take. And it was through people involved in ministries like Celebrate Recovery and Camp All-American that God finally opened my eyes. He opened the eyes of a kid who did not believe that God could love him. That God not only could, but he did and he had in Jesus. And it is saying all of that, this is a unique privilege. And the passage we're going to look at today is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. This is a famous passage. This is one that you have all heard at some point, I'm assuming, and you've probably even memorized parts of it. But whenever we hear this passage, if your tendency is like mine, it is to look at it and to hear it as an individual. To see my sin, my need, my brokenness, and my Savior. But Paul, as he is writing this to the Ephesians, he is writing to the church. And he is laying the foundation for everything that is going to come. And if we as God's people want to be able to live in the way that he has called us to, we have to start here. And so as we open up God's word today, I want you asking two questions. What kind of community does this passage describe? And what are the implications of what it says? Here's what it says, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning hungry. Lord, I confess my pride, I confess my arrogance, I confess my self-reliance, and Lord, I pray that you would speak through me in weakness and in brokenness, that Lord, your spirit would come. Lord, I pray you would take Ephesians 2 and you would bring it vividly to life this morning. And Lord, you would take our hearts and you would expose them to the light of the gospel. That Lord, you would expose things that we did not know were there. But even as you do, Lord, you would show us your son. Lord Jesus, we want you. We need you. So please come this morning. Speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. Boasting is one of those things that we all hate, but yet we all seem to do. And when I was in college, I worked at some really odd kind of jobs. Uh, and a lot of those happened because I was a part of campus outreach. And if you are familiar with campus outreach, you go on beach projects. And my summer before I graduated from the University of Georgia, I was working as a drive through guy at a McDonald's. And my job was you would go through the drive through you would order your food, you would pull up to that first window, and I would pull it back, and I'd be standing there in my, my green McDonald's polo and my little hat, and I would say, welcome to McDonald's, we're so glad you're here. Here's what you ordered, here's how much you owe, they would hand me their money, I would get them their change, and then I would say, if you'll pull up to the next window, they'll give you your food. Thank you so much for coming, we're so glad you came. And when you're working in a drive through 
you start to see some things that maybe you wouldn't expect. Because people, when they pull through, they don't realize that you can see everything in their car. There is nothing that is not open to you. And on top of that, people oftentimes forget that you're not just some like automated computer that hands them their money, but you're a person who's standing there, listening to you, talking to you. And there was one moment that just seared itself into my brain more than any other. A car pulled up, a big blue, brand new pickup, lifted, it was beautifully washed, and on the back was a University of South Carolina bumper sticker. And I say that as a, as a graduate of the University of Georgia, it's just what it said, I'm not trying to insult him, I love you, I have my, my sister-in-law went to the University of South Carolina, but when that window came down, there were two high school boys inside. One of them had his hand on the steering wheel, and he was kind of leaning back, and he had his hat on backwards, and next to him was his buddy, and they looked at me, and then they looked at each other, and they snickered. And I knew immediately they were laughing at me. And I gave them my smile. I said, welcome to McDonald's. We're so glad you're here. I told them their order. I told them how much it cost. They gave me their money. I gave them their change. And then as soon as the car in front of them pulled away, the kid turned and he looked at me. He said, you should have stayed in school. And he gunned it. And if he had not pulled away fast enough, I think I would have reached through that window and grabbed him by the collar and pulled him inside and said, who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? Do you know what college I go to? Do you know what grades I've made? Do you know how close I am to graduation? I'm bigger than you. I'm faster than you. I'm stronger than you. You're just some punk kid boasting in a car his daddy bought him. (laughs) And it wasn't until the end of the day that I realized that the very thing that made me so angry, the very thing that made my blood boil and made me want to pull him through that window, that the same spirit was alive in me. Because why did I get angry? It was because he looked at me, and he didn't see the things that I thought set me apart. He didn't see my grades. He didn't see my college. He didn't see my graduation date. He didn't see the things I was involved in. All he saw was some guy in a McDonald's uniform, and he assumed that I was just like everybody else inside. And I desperately did not want that to be true. I was boasting what I thought set me apart, and he exposed it. We boast. We boast in things that we think make us different from everybody else. We boast in how much money we've made, and we look down on those who don't make quite as much, and we say in our hearts, I love them and I care for them, but if they had worked as hard as I did, they'd had the talents that I did and took advantage of the opportunities before them, they wouldn't be in the position they're in. We boast that we took jobs that didn't pay as much. And we look at those who make a lot more and we say, well, if they had really loved God and they really loved their families and they really put them first, then they wouldn't have taken that job in the first place. We boast in our children in what friends they have and what the neighbors say about them and what schools they're going to and careers they're embarking on and the children that they produce themselves. We, we boast in our appearance We boast in our political ideologies. We boast in our religious faith and how faithful we are in observing the things that are expected of us here. And what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is that the gospel sweeps all such boasting away. He says, in the people of God, there is no room for boasting. There is no room for pride. There is no room for division because everything is grace. And if we are those who have been saved by God's grace, that means that all of our boasting has to fall to the floor. And as God's people, we have to lift our hands and say, God, everything that I have is yours. 
I lay it at your feet. I am yours in every way. There is nothing that I can hold back because everything I have, you gave. We boast because we miss the gospel that we deserved wrath and God gave us grace. He gave us mercy. We boast because first and foremost, we don't get the gospel, but not only that, we don't even understand ourselves. Paul says right out of the gates, here's what you were. You deserved God's wrath. In verse 3, he says, you were all, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, if you're like me, when I hear that, there is a part of me that just doesn't sit very well. I start to look around and I go, well, you know, I'm not that bad of a guy. I'm not Hitler. I'm not killing the millions. I mean, he deserves God's wrath, but not me. I'm not idiot mean. I don't have a felony. I've never committed a misdemeanor that anyone knows of. Um, I've never had more than a couple traffic tickets. And those are, I mean, those are debatable. Who knows if I was really going that fast? Um, I tithe. I'm married. I love my wife. I love my little daughter. Um, I, I, have a, I work hard at my job. I do all the things that are expected of me. So who are you to say that I deserve God's wrath? I can look at my neighbor, and I'm at least a little bit better than him, so surely maybe that wrath goes over there, but not to me. What Paul says to you here, he says, if that is you, then you haven't really looked deep enough. You deserved God's wrath. I deserve God's wrath. Why? Because first he says, you were dead. In verse 1, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, if Paul had said that we were sick, I don't think any of us would really fight with that. Because it doesn't take a very astute observer of human nature to realize that things are not as they should be. You know, when you try to plan a family vacation, you always have these grand visions of what's going to happen. The kids are going to sit in the back. They all want to watch the same DVD. They're all going to want to go to the bathroom at the allotted times and not any other time. They're not going to poke each other. They'll stay in their own space. And you and your wife are going to hold hands and smile at each other and agree on the directions and agree on the restaurants and agree on how the children should be disciplined. And we have all these visions, and then the trip actually happens. And the kids are crying. The DVDs are shattering because they're pulling them around. They all have to poop at the wrong time. Your spouse is angry with you for reasons you just don't even understand. And you're angry and you're like, I don't know why I'm mad, but I'm just angry. This is awful. Because every time, every time we plan for utopia, what we always get is something that's just a little bit closer to hell. (laughs) What Paul says to us, what Paul says right here, is that if you said, so if we said that he was, if he said that we were sick, we believe him. We go, yeah, that makes sense. The problem is Paul doesn't say that. He says, you weren't sick, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's saying that no matter how your life may look, no matter how you may present yourself, no matter what you may look like, you were dead. You weren't somebody sitting on the surface of a pool, flailing their arms and calling for help. You were a corpse. Dead, not to moral good. Not to the ability to look at your neighbor's yard and know that they're in the hospital and think, well, I could go and I could help them by mowing it for them. But dead, he says, no, dead to spiritual good. As he says in Romans 5, 17, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of that garden, it wasn't just them that died. We all died with them. We died to God's voice. We died to his love. We died to his will. We died to everything in us that would even incline our hearts towards him. And Paul says that's a death in which we have all walked. And if that's true, 
then it doesn't matter what our lives look like on the outside. It doesn't matter that I look different than Hitler and some guy with a felony on his record because at its core, at the center, it is the same. And Paul says not only are we dead, we're enslaved. In verse uh, 2, he says, after he says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. If you are dead to God's voice, that means you're alive to something else. And what Paul says is that thing, it is not something over which you have dominion. Rather, it is something that has dominion over you. You were enslaved. And first he says you were enslaved to the world. And this is something that we've all experienced. We've felt the tidal wave of our culture that tells us what we need to be, what we need to have, what we need to possess, where satisfaction is actually found, the things that we should like and dislike, what our culture says is good and what our culture says is evil. And we hear all these things and we feel all these things and we soak in these things and we are pulled along by the current. And even when we want to get out, always it seems to drag us back in. But Paul says that's not all you're enslaved to. Because if you are dead to God's voice, whose voice do you think you're listening to? He says, all of us, every one of us, we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now working the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. If you were dead to the voice of God, he says, then you were alive to the voice of Satan himself, of the one who looked at God and said, I want your throne, not your will, but mine be done. And if that's true, then that makes us not just those who are enslaved to the world, but enslaved to the evil one himself and enemies of the God who made us. And the part that should really indict all of us is this. It was what we wanted. Notice what he says here. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He's saying whatever life you have lived, Whatever it is that you have done, it was the life you wanted to live. It was what your heart craved. It was what you meditated upon and you desired more than anything else. It was what you wanted from the very core of your being. And if that's the case, if this is a life that we have wanted, then wrath is not just something that God randomly assigns to us. Rather, it is exactly what we deserve because we have set ourselves against the very God who made us and said that we could find life only in himself. And Paul says there is no one who escapes this verdict. It hits every one of us. Things are not what they seem. They are not what they appear to be. No matter what you may think and what the world may tell you, at its core, at its heart, we're the same. And nowhere was this more clearly displayed than just a couple years ago in the news media. If I said the name Jerry Sandusky, everyone here has an impression. You're probably not, if I would hazard a guess. You're not thinking of the guy who helped uh, Penn State go to a national football title in the 90s. You're not thinking of a guy who was loved by his players and loved by their parents. You're not thinking of a guy who George H.W. Bush once said was a shining example of what we all should be. You're not thinking of a guy who started a charity called Second Mile to help at-risk kids and had sponsors and celebrities endorsing him everywhere he looked like Andy Reid and Mark Wahlberg and Arnold Palmer. Because what we all know is that Jerry Sandusky had a secret. 
that underneath the veneer, underneath the mask, underneath all the applause and all the praise, there was a man who did not love children. He hated them. And he took that charity and he used it to find young boys, to groom young boys, and then to exploit them. And when we see him now, sitting in a jail cell with a guilty verdict written across his record for 45 counts of sexual misconduct with minors, there is not one of us who does not think he deserved the full wrath of the courts. Because he took something that was of value, something that was of worth, and he violated it. Paul says the same is true of every one of us. That while we may look around and think, well, I'm not like him, or I'm not like her. If we are truly dead and enslaved, if we are truly enemies of the God who made us, then it does not matter what our life might look like to a watching world. Because in our very center, we are exposed. And if we know, if we know that Jerry Sandusky deserved the full wrath of the courts because he took something that was of value and he violated it, how much more how much more when the one that we have set our hearts against, the one that we have rejected with everything we are, is the God of ultimate value and ultimate worth? We deserve wrath. One of my favorite songs is by a guy named Sufjan Stevens. And in this song, it's called John Wayne Gacy Jr., and it is a song about a serial killer. It's about a guy who on the surface looks totally put together. He was a clown at children's birthday parties. He was a mover and shaker in his local community. He was always finding young boys who were homeless, who had father issues, and he was giving them jobs and giving them advice. But underneath the surface, there was a very sinister man who would take these boys into his home, chloroform them and kill them, and then bury them beneath his floorboards. And in this song, Sufjan describes this man, this seeming contradiction and at the very end, he says something that has stuck with me since the moment I heard it. He says, and in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards at the secrets I've hid. Paul says, here's your secret. Here's what we're all hiding. Here's what we want no one to see. We may not have sins that will get us splashed across the headlines like Jerry Sandusky or John Wayne Gacy, but at our hearts, at our core, it is the same. We were dead, dead to God, dead to his love and dead to his voice and enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, enemies of the very God who made us. Wrath isn't some arbitrary judgment that God just casts upon us. It is what we deserve. But here's where the gospel shows up in all of its beauty. In verse 4, Paul says, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's saying, you deserved wrath. God showed you mercy. He gave you what you did not deserve. And first, he says, he gave you his love. Right there from the very start, he says, right here, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He's saying, here is the love of God for you. It is not that he looked on you once you had reformed yourself, once you had cleaned yourself up, once you had done just enough to make yourself right with him. It's not then that he loved you. Rather, he says, no, I loved you even when you were dead in your transgressions. 
I loved you when your heart beat against me with everything that was within it. I loved you before the very foundations of the world. I loved you when there was no good in you, nothing in you that desired me. I set my love upon you. He is a husband who comes home to his wife in the arms of another man, and instead of hating her, instead of turning his back on her, instead of saying, I'm leaving you and I want no more, instead looks at them and says, you I will restore, I love you still. And he is a God who has come to us in Jesus and said, this love is for you. It's not a love that sits by apathetically. It's not a love that's content just to watch. This is a love that expresses itself in action. Because God has not just given us his love. He's given us the very life of his son. Notice verses 5 to 7. Notice the language. If you go just a few verses before into chapter 1, Paul has just finished describing Jesus in this way. He says that God showed his power and that he raised Jesus from the dead and he seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the age that is to come. He is painting a picture of a God who sent his son to save his people who loved them when there was nothing lovable in them, when there was nothing lovely about them, who sent his son to die the death they should have died, and when he died said, it is finished, it is enough, and so he raised him. And he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, restoring him to all that was his, all that he left behind, so now he sits over heaven and earth, over everything made that was made, over everything that is here, holding together the cells of your body, even as you sit in your seat. There is nothing over which he is not the king. Now look at verses 5 to 7. He says, he made you alive together with him. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's what God's saying. He's saying everything that my son has, everything he possesses, All that he is, every bit of it, I'm giving it to you. You were dead. Dead to my love and dead to my voice and dead to my will. I made you alive with him. I breathed fresh life into your lungs. I raised you with him. So that when he stepped out of the tomb on the third day and he walked out in a body that death could no longer hold and disease could no longer contain, you walked out of there with him. And you too will one day have a body that death cannot hold and disease cannot contain. He says, I seated you with him in the heavenly places so that you, though you were enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil, you would be enslaved no more but free. And you who had no hope, you who had no future, you who thought that the only thing that awaits you is God's judgment and his hate, instead would know that you are now seated in Christ in the heavenly places and where he is, there you are going to be also. He has not just given us the love we don't deserve, he's given us the life we don't deserve as well. There are places so deep beneath the earth's surface that fewer people have plumbed their depths than have actually stepped on the face of the moon. And if you were to go to South Africa, there is what looks like a pond sitting in the bushlands. And if you dove into that pond, you would discover, much to your surprise and horror, that it's actually a 900-foot deep cave that is two football fields wide, a thing so dark, so deep beneath the earth, that light goes there to die, and there is nothing that swims in its waters but a few, dead, a few blind fish. 
And even if you are one of the world's most experienced divers, if you go into those waters, you go at the risk of your own life. In 1994, Dion Dreyer found that out the hard way. He dove into those waters, and the same waters that swallowed the light swallowed him. And while his family and those he loved knew he was in that cave, they did not know where, and they could not find his body. Until 10 years later, another young man named David Shaw dove in the same waters. And when his fingers brushed the bottom, they brushed against the body of DeAndrea. A rubber suit filled with bones trapped in the silt. And while he knew that he couldn't bring back the body right then, that he didn't have the equipment, he didn't have the oxygen, and he didn't have the time, he vowed he was going to come back. And so he attached a line to his body so he would find his way back, and he swam to the surface. And a few years later, he came back, true to his word. He had a plan. He had the equipment. He had the preparation. But when David Shaw dove into those waters, the same waters that swallowed the light, the same waters that swallowed DeAndre or swallowed him, and the team that was with him could not get to him to save him. They did not know what went wrong, and they thought that he was lost just as DeAndre had been. And then something remarkable happened. One week later, David Shaw's body rose, covered in gear and wrapped in wire, and it floated to the surface. And attached to his head was a camera. And when his friends plugged that camera into a monitor, what they saw was a man who found DeAndre's body again. But when he got there, his main light got caught in the wire and it shattered. And suddenly the whole plan fell apart because now he could not see. And on this video, you hear a man who is struggling to breathe. His breath is getting more and more rapid, who is trying to untangle himself from the same wires that held DeAndre. And when he can't seem to do it, he takes out his knife and begins to slash in the air. He cuts again and again and again and again, always hoping to find it, never actually getting there until finally his breathing gets slower and his hand stops moving and then everything is still. But here's what's beautiful. When David Shaw's body rose to the surface, it didn't come up by itself. Because wrapped in the same wires, carrying the same equipment, was the body of DeAndre. When he rose, DeAndre rose with him. What God says in Ephesians 2 is what I've done for you in the gospel is greater than that. When David Shaw dove into those waters, he didn't want to die. He wanted to bring back DeAndre's body to the ones he loved. He wanted to restore him to his family. He didn't want to die doing it. But here's what God says in the gospel. I looked on you and there was nothing good in you. I looked on you when every beat of your heart was set against me. I loved you. And I sent my son not just into the depths of a pool, but into the very depths of hell for you. And Jesus went willingly, and he dove into those depths, and he wrapped himself in the same wires that held you, and he bore the wrath of God in your place, so that when the Father raised him, he raised you with him, so that as soon as the first breath of air rushed into his lungs again on the third day, that same air breathed into yours, and you were raised to life, not as a corpse brought to the surface like DeAndre, but instead as a people made alive. And he has taken you. 
not just out of your death and into life, but he has seated you in the heavenly places with him, in him. And he is not using the language of possibility, the language of it could happen, it might happen, let's hope it happened. He uses the language of accomplished fact. He says, you were made alive, you were raised with him, and you were seated with him in the heavenly places. Where he is, there you will be, and in some sense, there you are right now. There is nothing that can take you from the Father's hand because when he was raised, you were raised with him. He has given you not just the love you don't deserve, but the life as well. And the beauty of the gospel is that Paul says it is all a gift. It's all a gift. In Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. In three verses, he obliterates whatever grounds for boasting may remain. He cuts away whatever you are holding on to, whatever you think sets you apart, and he says, it's all gone. Because if you come and say, well, I deserve God's wrath, but what sets me apart, it's my faith. I heard the gospel, I believed the gospel, and that's what sets me apart. Paul says, where do you think your faith came from? It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith is not the action of a dead man. Faith is the action of a people made alive. If you say, well, all right, I admit the faith doesn't come from me. That comes from God. But when I became a Christian, my life was reformed more than anybody else's. I changed. I didn't commit any more heinous sins. I'm still married to my wife. I still love my children. All my kids are walking with the Lord. I've got a good job and a good family. I'm going to do all that God has asked me to. Surely that's what sets me apart. Paul says, you don't get to hold on to that either. You were God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Everything, all that you possess, all that you are, Every bit of it, every corner of it, every shred of it is grace, and it is all from him. And if that is true, if we deserved God's wrath, and he showed us mercy, and he gave us his love, and he gave us his son's life, and he gave it all as a gift, then there is no more room for boasting. There is no more room for pride. There is no more room for shouting about our place in the world or arguing about what sets us apart. Because if that is the case, and everything is grace, and everything is summed up in those great words, but God, then there is no more room left to bargain. We don't have any space to look at our brothers and sisters and say, I'm just a little better. We don't have a right to look at someone and say, I will not forgive them, because God has forgiven you of something infinitely more. And what God invites us into what he invites you into in the, the gospel, in the economy of the gospel, it is this. It is that in Jesus Christ, there is no more difference between Jew or Gentile or slave or free, rich or poor, between the woman who gave her body to every man who asked and the one who waited till the day of her marriage. Between the man who has made millions of dollars and rests in his retirement and the one who struggles every day to get by on welfare. Between the kid who's got a truck who pulls in the McDonald's and the one who's sitting in the window. All of it is washed away. The gospel says there's no more boasting. There's no more pride. Because God has given us something infinitely greater and all of it is from him. Before this grace, 
This God who, when we deserved, when we deserved wrath, showed us mercy. Who, when we were dead, said, I have made you alive. Who, when we were enslaved, said, I have set you free. Who, when we had no hope and no future and nothing in this world for us, said, I will give you a hope and I will give you a future because I have seated you with my son in Christ. If all of that is true, and if Jesus has given us everything, then there is no more room for boasting. And all we can do as God's people is lift up our hands and say, God, everything I have is yours. Because all of it comes from you. That's the beauty of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It is a God calling his people to see what they are. But not just to see who they are, to see the God who has given them infinitely more than they could ask or imagine. Let's go to that God in prayer. Lord Jesus, Lord, I am thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for your mercy. I'm thankful that you are a God who calls sinners to yourself, who loves us, Lord, when there is nothing lovely in us. That you are one who has given us in Christ infinitely more than we could ask or imagine. Lord, I pray that for those in this room who um, have been boasting in what they have, Lord, I pray that you would lay them bare, that, Lord, you would open their eyes to their need for you, but the great abundant provision you have made in Jesus. And Lord, for those who today are are weak and wounded and think that you could not love them, who think that there are others who are so much better and there is no way you would look on them with favor, Lord, I pray that you would meet them with the comfort of the gospel, that they would know the good shepherd, the one who does not break bruised reeds or quench smoking flaxes, but instead takes care of them, protects them, and heals them. And Lord Jesus, we pray that there would be no one in this room who would leave here not holding fast to the only wise God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pray this in his name. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.